0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about missionary work. If it's truly going to be a mission, it must be local. Stitcher. Inappropriate Conversations is on it, so you should probably get it. Stitcher is an award-winning provider of news and talk radio for your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. I want to talk a little bit about missionary work today, so this will be a religiously focused, inappropriate conversation. And to get it started, I th- well, I think I need to start with a different drummer. From his website, thesimpleway.org, here's a biography of Shane Claiborne. Best selling author, prominent Christian activist, sought after speaker, and recovering sinner. With tears and laughter, Shane Claiborne unveils the tragic messes we've made of our world and the tangible hope that another world is possible. Shane graduated from Eastern University and did graduate work at Princeton Seminary. His ministry experience is varied from a 10-week stint alongside Mother Teresa in Calcutta to a year spent serving a wealthy congregation at Willow Creek Community Church outside Chicago. During the recent war in Iraq, Shane spent three weeks in Baghdad with the Iraq Peace Team. Shane is a founding partner of The Simple Way, a faith community in inner-city Philadelphia that has helped to birth and connect radical faith communities around the world. Shane Claiborne considers himself and is widely considered to be a leader in the new monastic movement. New monasticism, well, let's go to Wikipedia. It's either a lay modern movement within Protestant Christianity modeled on a monastic way of life in contemporary context or a movement within Roman Catholicism. I'm going to refer to it as being the former, a new movement, a modern version of the monastic way of life within Protestant Christianity. And this is important because some of the uh, concepts that have been forwarded by new monasticism include key differences to what we would have con- you know, considered to be medieval monastic life. The rule of life associated with new monasticism doesn't include necessarily a vow of celibacy. You know, they welcome married couples into their community. So they also don't have to have a, a single place. It's not like they're going to a convent or going to a monastery. Instead, the idea is trying to get the uh, people who are serving others, maybe those who are in abject poverty, or those who have some other sort of special need, to get the new monastic as close to those people as humanly possible. Here are the 12 marks of new monasticism. Relocation to the abandoned places of empire. I'm going to get more to empire a little bit later on in the year when I talk about sort of end times eschatology. Sharing economic resources with fellow community members and the needy among us. Hospitality to the stranger. Lament for racial divisions within the church and our communities, combined with the active pursuit of a just reconciliation. Humble submission to Christ's body, the church. Intentional formation in the way of Christ. Nurturing common life among members of an intentional community. Support for celibate singles alongside monogamous married couples and their children, geographical proximity to the community members who share a common rule of life, care for the plot of God's earth given to us along with support for our local economies, peacemaking in the midst of violence and conflict resolution within communities along the lines of Matthew chapter 18, and commitment to a disciplined contemplative life. Matthew 18 there refers to a couple of passages, one about uh, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven and Jesus answering the question that the greatest will be humble, like a little child, but also on reconciliation or on arbitration, almost, where Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen— Take one or two others along with you that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. During the course of this inappropriate conversation, I'm going to let Claiborne speak in his own words, not just in the different drummer segment, but throughout. And I'm going to separate it in a couple of ways. When I get to the body of this, talking about the importance of missionary work being local, I'm going to separate that out and talk about a couple of quotations in some length of his work. I'm going to refer to the irresistible revolution, which has a lot to do with the beginning of his ministry, or at least the beginning of his publication ministry, and talking a little bit about um, the outreach to the poor. And then I'm going to read in, in its entirety an essay that he put online a few years ago about interacting with people who are unchurched. But in this segment, I want to do two things just to introduce him and can, can give people a feel for what his mentality is. I want to read his 12 hopes for 2012, sort of his list of things that he wanted us to collectively be thinking about as a group of Christians who are committed to the idea of outreach, coming into the calendar year that we're in today. But I also want to cite a few quotations from him that are just simply online. If you're looking for the source that I'm reading, I'm looking at a page from goodreads.com, just under the author Shane Claiborne. So here are some quotes from Shane. Most good things have been said far too many times and just need to be lived. For even if the whole world believed in resurrection, little would change until we began to practice it. We can believe in CPR, but people will still remain dead until someone breathes new life into them. And we can tell the world that there is life after death, but the world really seems to be wondering if there is a life before death. The more I get to know Jesus, the more trouble he seems to get me into all around you. People will be tiptoeing through life just to arrive at death safely. But dear children, do not tiptoe. Run, hop, skip, or dance. Just don't tiptoe. Only Jesus would be crazy enough to suggest that if you want to become the greatest, you should become the least. Only Jesus would declare God's blessings on the poor rather than on the rich, and would insist that it's not enough to just love your friends. I just began to wonder if anybody still believed that Jesus meant those things he said. I believe in a God of scandalous grace. I have pledged allegiance to a king who loved evildoers so much he died for them, teaching us that there is something worth dying for, but nothing worth killing for. Some random quotations from Shane Claiborne. I have liked Shane Claiborne on Facebook, which enables me from time to time to see video that is put online of the messages that he has presented, some of them in a church, some in other venues. And I'm consistently moved by the the message that he provides, the example that he sets with his peacefulness and his love for others. One I remember only, only too incompletely to give it justice, but he was going out to do a talk before a uh, congregation. And on the way to the pulpit, the senior pastor of the church interrupted him and pointed out a gay couple that was attending the church that day and sitting near the front of the sanctuary. And he, he made a point to let Claiborne know that he was perfectly fine if Claiborne chose to say something about that. And I think the impression was that Claiborne was being given a lot of leeway in this church to cast a lot of judgment upon those people. And Claiborne you know, later said in an interview and online that he, he, he not only chose not to do that, but he chose to do exactly the opposite, letting those men know um, how pleased he was that they found their way into a congregation, even if at times they may not have felt welcomed there. That's the heart of Shane Claiborne. Here are 12 hopes for 2012 written by him, obviously at the onset of the new year. Counting down. Number 12, do something really nice that no one knows about. Number 11, spend more money on other people than I spend on myself. Love my neighbor as I love myself and love myself as I love my neighbor. Number 10, laugh often, especially at advertisements that try to convince me that I must buy more stuff in order to be happy. Number nine, learn a new life skill like carpentry, pottery, or canning vegetables. Teach someone else a life skill I know how to do. Number eight, love a few people well, remembering that what is important is not how much we do, but how much love we put into doing it. Number seven, write a letter to someone I need to say thank you to. Write another letter to someone I need to ask to forgive me. Number six, track down a critic, or someone I disagree with, and take them to lunch. Listen to them. Number 5. Compliment someone I have a hard time complimenting, and mean it. Number 4. Choose life. Do something regularly to interrupt the patterns of death. Do something to end violence, bullying, war, capital punishment, and other mean and ugly things. Number three, pause before every potential crisis and ask, will this matter in five years? Number two, get outside often and marvel at things like fireflies and shooting stars and regularly get my hands into the garden. So when I type on the computer, I can see dirt under my fingernails. And number one, believe in miracles and live in a way that might necessitate one. 12 Hopes for 2012 by Shane Claiborne. And before I end the different drummer segment, I just want to speak about a couple of them in particular. Note that when he uses Choose Life, he's not making a political campaign here. He's speaking practically in a very real and direct ways, face-to-face sort of encounters. He would put in the list of the enemies of life, bullies, warmongers, other things besides what you might typically think when we hear somebody who expresses a pro-life piece of rhetoric. And finally, uh, the one I'd like to comment to, love a few people well, remembering that it is important not how much we do, but how much love we put into doing it. I've said before on inappropriate conversations that to be a friend to a lot of people in the way that I interpret the meaning of the word friendship would be emotionally debilitating. I take love seriously. It's not something that is just window dressing. And Shane Claiborne seems to feel the same way. He has walked the walk for a few weeks with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, learning as much as he could from her and others in that experience, but also rescuing people as much as possible, participating in standing up to the power of authority, where that authority is behaving inappropriately toward marginalized and disenfranchised people. On the other side of a break, I'm going to talk a little bit about his book, The Irresistible Revolution, and I'm going to quote from it in the context of you know, what happened after he, quote unquote, succeeded. What happens after you stand up to the Roman Catholic Church and the local diocese and the you know police in the city who are more interested in um, making sure that the poor and the hungry and the homeless and the disenfranchised can't use an empty building that – none of the people involved intended to use. The church didn't want to use it. The city and the state didn't want to use it. But they wanted it to be empty instead of being used by people in their moment of greatest need for no other reason than an assertion of property rights. After you succeed, though, and you begin to create a community where people can interact with those who are homeless and in need of medical care, in need of counseling and tutoring, uh, help getting jobs, just food and shelter, what happens then? We'll talk about that on the other side. My game plan is to release this Inappropriate Conversations episode before the 13th of July. And the reason I've targeted that date is that July 13th is the anniversary of Live Aid. Live Aid was a world famous event organized by Bob Geldof and Mid Jure to raise funds for the relief of ongoing Ethiopian famine. It was conducted in both Philadelphia and in London on July 13, 1985, meaning we're approaching the 27th anniversary of Live Aid. And the only memories I've got of Live Aid are positive ones. But it's an interesting thing that I woke up that morning not really knowing that it was on. It's not that I hadn't heard about it in the few days or maybe even weeks before. I'm a fan of the group, the Boomtown Rats, and that by default makes me a fan of Bob Geldof, and I've always enjoyed hearing Geldof speak. He has the proper measure of of humility and activism, and there are other people that we think of as famously being involved in um, international affairs, which may not have the humility part of that balance quite as right as Geldof does, but It wasn't important enough for me that when I woke up that morning, it was a priority. And yet flipping on the TV, getting dressed and ready for work, because I worked weekends back then. This would have been the summer. So working uh, as many hours as possible, more than 40 hours a week on almost every single week to get myself ready uh, for college, raising the money that would turn into the spending money in the next couple of semesters. So I'm getting dressed. I've got the TV on and, and Live Aid's on. And I notice Boomtown Rats are on. And I suddenly became very concerned that this is going to be a lot cooler than I thought it would be with a lot of my favorite bands on the uh, list of upcoming performers. So, uh, you know, Boomtown Rats were going to be on and then Black Sabbath. Later on, you'd, there'd be a performance by you know, Led Zeppelin even you know, later into the evening. And I was going to be at work for most of the day. So between me and my father and maybe my siblings, we tried to create as many recordings as we could so that anything that was being broadcast live on MTV that happened while I was at work, I could catch when I got home. So I cared about Live Aid, but at no point did it ever really connect with me that what I really should have been doing was looking at my financial situation so that I could make some sort of pledge. And I'm not exactly sure what stopped me from giving a pledge. I don't believe I did give to live it. I know I didn't give during that broadcast, but in addition to just being more focused on the music and being a little distracted and not paying attention to the event as a fundraiser, I think the other thing that kind of distracted me from it is that I don't tend to think of, of that sort of missionary outreach. I don't feel connected to it when all I can do is write a check. Here's a perspective on that from the rock band Living Color. I see the starving Africans on TV. I feel it has nothing to do with me. I paid my $20 to live aid. I paid my guilty conscience to go away. That is you know, a harsh perspective from the Living Color album. The studio version uh, is on the Living Color album Stain, which is certainly my favorite CD by that band with lots of hard hitting and intentionally sort of provocative ideas being expressed. And then, you know, this one, it goes not just to uh, the question of, you know, starving Africans, but it also goes into AIDS and what stops us from giving, what stops us from participating. And I believe, and I think Shane Claiborne does as well, that sometimes the most important thing we can give somebody isn't even necessarily financial or material support. Sometimes the most important thing we can give to somebody is touch, is face-to-face, is looking at them. And letting them look at you. For some of these folks, the biggest problem they have is ontological. Sometimes they just need somebody to acknowledge that they're real. That they're really there. And that on some level, they matter. The Irresistible Revolution, published by uh, Zondervan Press in Grand Rapids, Michigan, by Shane Claiborne, you know, really early in his career as an author, outlines to some degree the story of his experiences in India but also the experience in Philadelphia that led to the formation of the Simple Way, where it simply you know, became apparent to uh, Claiborne that you had homeless people squatting in a place that was not in use and not going to be in use. And to his alarm, the church, quote unquote, uh, in this case, the denomination itself, was standing in the way of trying to combine resources that were not committed for any other purpose to the need of serving those people. And as it played out, through some twists and turns, a community was being formed with a combination of volunteers and the people who needed that volunteer service, homeless people, people with mental and uh, social needs, people who are trying to get a job, but it's very hard to get a job when you cannot make yourself even presentable for the interview. And Claiborne's group and others like-minded people stepped in and made a difference. Along the way, by becoming something, by creating you know, something you could point to, something you could actually give money to, Claiborne began to encounter folks, either by giving uh, talks in churches or doing outreach, trying to go into communities of faith and encouraging participation. Because this kind of direct face-to-face missionary encounter is not only edifying in obvious ways to the people who are being helped, but it's incredibly edifying to the people who are doing the helping. And if you were to read his book, The Irresistible Revolution, that's really the story being told on those pages. I want to quote from the edition that I've got, the paperback, pages 159 and 160, a couple of paragraphs where he describes what happens when he does speak with people who have tremendous means and a lot of options and opportunities to serve. Quoting Claiborne, often wealthy folks ask me what they can do. I can ask them for a few thousand dollars but that would be too easy for both of us. Instead, I ask them to come visit. Writing a check makes us feel good and can fool us into thinking that we have loved the poor. But seeing the squat houses and tent cities and hungry children will transform our lives. Then we'll be stirred to imagine the economics of rebirth and to hunger for the end of poverty. Almost every time we talk with affluent folks about God's will to end poverty, someone says, but didn't Jesus say the poor will always be with you? Many of the people who whip out this verse have grown quite insulated and distant from the poor and feel defensive. I usually gently ask, where are the poor? Are the poor among us? The answer is usually a clear negatory. As we study the scriptures, we see how many texts have been misread, contextualized, and exegeted to hear what we want to. Like this one about the poor being among us, which Jesus says in the home of a leper and after a poor marginalized woman anoints his feet with perfume. The poor were all around him. Far from saying in defeat that we should not worry about the poor since they will always be among us, Jesus is pointing the church to her true identity. She is to live close to those who suffer. show where Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is up against Forbidden Planet, And somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. (laughs) Welcome to Game Fights, the Ponzi scheme of podcasting. I'm David Shaw. With me, as always, is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So what are we fighting about this time, David? Best sci-fi movie of all time. Best token minority. Best animated TV series. Listen. Gamefights.net. I mentioned a few episodes back in Inappropriate Conversations that these ideas are not something that I do here on the show and not out in the world. I know that I fail from time to time, but I really try not to lead a compartmentalized life. There are ideas that fall all over the political spectrum, but that fall perhaps outside of the traditional interpretation of scripture that I share in church. If someone asks me, over lunch, whether on a work day or a weekend day, what my thoughts are on an issue. I rarely give them the soundbite answer because I don't think the soundbite answer communicates accurately what I believe. That page of quotation from Claiborne, I have shared in church, not just in my small group meetings or in my Sunday school class, but the lay leader of my church at my request read that to the entire congregation. We were asking the congregation to imagine a different approach to the question of church attendance, that maybe, just maybe, what we really needed was to be reaching out, not just to people that lived nearby in the nice part of town and could bolster our congregation both with their resources and their attendance, but we also needed to be reaching out to those people who were close enough to us. And in the not so nice situations, those who, whether they were still living um, in the neighborhoods, the middle class neighborhoods in our part of the city, but had lost jobs or had had some other horrific uh, life event that left them in a marginalized situation, or actually to go into the different parts of town that we would describe as more the, the inner city with more inner city problems. Again, it's a lot easier to get somebody to donate money or even to bring in food or paper towels or something to support an inner city mission, it's much more difficult to get them to go with you there. Now, I'm not holding myself up as somebody who has any superiority here. I am not very good at making that trip into the inner city mission. It's not that I have an opposition. It's just that the opportunities and me don't necessarily light up the way they should, and that's perhaps something I should have had on my list of things to do in the year 2012. But that's a far cry from the response that we got when the lay leader of my church read this passage and shared something about Shane Claiborne's ministry in Sunday morning as a moment of witness within the worship service. He was pulled aside, as was I later, by the finance chairperson who wanted to make sure we understood that he was not on board with that point of view that he understood how crucial it was to do mission work and he understood how important it was that that face-to-face thing was real he wasn't discounting anything that was said but that he really thought that we were doing a disservice to the church by not being more interested or by dissuading people from the importance of trying to get help from those who actually had the resources to help not a practical level there's a certain you know prudentism to this approach there's this idea that you hear sometimes among you know, politically active Christians that we need to be speaking to the leaders. We need to be in Washington, D.C. with those lobbyists, rubbing elbows with the people in the think tanks. We need to be influencing the people who are the opinion leaders. And this is a similar idea that you really want to fund a mission trip to help people in the Gulf Coast after Katrina. Well, then a lot of the funding for that mission trip is going to come from very wealthy people, some of whom can't make the trip. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I just happen to agree with Claiborne that the rewards are much greater for anybody who does make that trip. And it doesn't really matter to me whether you're making that trip from the wealthy part of town, from the middle class part of town, or from the poor part of town. The most important thing is to get face to face with those who are in need. When you give money to a cause like Live Aid, even if you succeed in in that $20 donation, turning into at least $19 of direct aid. The real missionary work is not being done by you when you wrote a check. It's not being done by the operator who answered the phone when you called in a credit card donation. It's being done by whoever ultimately gets the trickle down of those proceeds and goes in and holds the hand of somebody in need who provides the food for somebody who is starving. That's where the missionary work happens. And again, it's not to discount the importance of the you know, millions of dollars raised in Live Aid and what an incredibly impactful event that was, not just culturally, but you know, in terms of the need that it addressed. But those who gave, who did a better job than I did, in other words, who actually contributed, weren't doing missionary work. They were funding missionary work. And there's a huge difference between those concepts. Nerd Hurdle, where every week Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid, but you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simply syndicated.com. Okay, so the obvious form of of mission work, of evangelical interaction in the world, is you know doing what Jesus said in terms of taking care of the poor and the widows and the orphans. And doing it ourselves because if we do this work ourselves, some of that heavy lifting will take the burden away from government. And that has a way of diffusing a lot of the conservative versus liberal bickering that we hear, not just in Washington, DC, but in our state capitals and even our local governments as well. Even if you're an arch conservative who's opposed to you know welfare programs, you wouldn't tell an individual citizen that they should stop going to the soup kitchen and feeding the poor and hungry. At least I don't think you would. So it has a way of diffusing that. But is there another source of evangelical outreach? Is there another you know, way of doing what might loosely be considered missionary work? And I believe there is. And I believe that some of that is toward the unchurched. Here's what Shane Claiborne wrote. I printed it off from Facebook on August thirteenth, two thousand eleven. But I've also seen it online with earlier publication dates, um, November eighteenth, two thousand nine, for example. It's an article he wrote called "What If Jesus Meant All That Stuff," quoting Claiborne. To all of my non-believing, sort of believing, and used to be believing friends, I feel like I should begin with a confession. I am sorry that so often the biggest obstacle to God has been Christians. Christians who have had so much to say with our mouths and so little to show with our lives. I am sorry that so often we have forgotten the Christ of our Christianity. Forgive us. Forgive us for the embarrassing things that we have done in the name of God. The other night I headed into downtown Philly for a stroll with some friends from out of town. We walked down to Penn's Landing along the river where there are street performers artists, musicians. We passed a great magician who did some, you know, pretty sweet tricks like pour change out of his iPhone. And then there was a preacher. He wasn't quite as captivating as the magician. He stood on a box, yelling into a microphone, and beside him was a coffin with a fake dead body inside. He talked about how we are all going to die and go to hell if we don't know Jesus. Some folks snickered some told him to shut the hell up. A couple of teenagers tried to steal the dead body in the coffin. All I could do was think to myself, I want to jump up on a box beside him and yell at the top of my lungs, God is not a monster. Maybe next time I will. The more I have read the Bible and studied the life of Jesus, the more I become convinced that Christianity spreads best, not through force, but through fascination. But over the past few decades, our Christianity, at least here in America, has become less and less fascinating. We have given the atheists less and less to disbelieve. And the sort of Christianity many of us have seen on TV and heard on the radio looks less and less like Jesus. At one point, Gandhi was asked if he was a Christian, and he said essentially, I sure love Jesus, but the Christians seem so unlike their Christ. A recent study showed that the top three perceptions of Christians in the U.S. among young non-Christians are that Christians are one, anti-gay, two, judgmental, and three, hypocritical. So what we have here is a bit of an image crisis, and much of that reputation is well-deserved. That's the ugly stuff. And that's why I begin by saying that I'm sorry. Now for the good news. I wanted to invite you to consider that maybe the televangelists and street preachers are wrong, and that God really is love. Maybe the fruits of the Spirit really are beautiful things like peace, patience, kindness, joy, love, goodness, and not the ugly things that have come to characterize religion or politics for that matter. If there is anything I have learned from liberals and conservatives, It's that you can have great answers and still be mean, and that just as important as being right is being nice. The Bible that I read says God did not send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save it. It was because God so loved the world. That is the God I know, and I long for others to know. I did not choose to devote my life to Jesus because I was scared to death of hell or because I wanted crowns in heaven, but because he is good. For those of you who are on a sincere spiritual journey, I hope that you do not reject Christ because of Christians. We have always been a messed up bunch, and somehow God survived the embarrassing things we do in his name. At the core of our gospel is the message that Jesus came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And if you choose Jesus, may it not simply be because of a fear of hell or a hope for mansions in heaven. Don't get me wrong, I still believe in the afterlife, but too often all the church has done is promise the world that there is life after death and use it as a ticket to ignore the hells around us. I am convinced that the Christian gospel has as much to do with this life as the next, and that the message of that gospel is not just about going up when we die, but about bringing God's kingdom down. It was Jesus who taught us to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven on earth. One of Jesus' most scandalous stories is the story of the Good Samaritan. As sentimental as we may have made it, the original story was about a man who gets beat up and left on the side of the road. A priest passes by. A Levite, the quintessential religious guy, also passes by on the other side. Perhaps he was late for a church meeting. And then comes the Samaritan. You can almost imagine a snicker in the Jewish crowd. Jews did not talk to Samaritans, or even walk through Samaria. But the Samaritan stops and takes care of the guy in the ditch, and is lifted up as the hero of the story. I'm sure some of the listeners were ticked. According to the religious elite, Samaritans did not keep the rules right. They did not have sound doctrine. But Jesus shows that true faith has to work itself out in a way That is good news to the most bruised and broken person lying in the ditch. It is so simple, but the pious forget this lesson constantly. God may indeed be evident in a priest, but God is just as likely to be working through a Samaritan or a prostitute. In fact, the scripture is brimful of God using folks like a lying prostitute named Rahab, an adulterous king named David. At one point, God even speaks to a guy named Balaam through his donkey. Some say that God spoke to Balaam through his ass and has been speaking through asses ever since. So if God should choose to use us, then we should be grateful, but not think too highly of ourselves. And if upon meeting someone we think God could never use, we should think again. After all, Jesus says to the religious elite, who look down upon everybody else, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you and we wonder what got him killed. I have a friend in the UK who talks about dirty theology, that we have a God who is always using the dirt to bring life and healing and redemption, a God who shows up in the most unlikely and scandalous ways. After all, the whole story begins with God reaching down from heaven, picking up some dirt, and breathing life into it. At one point, Jesus takes some mud, spits in it, and wipes it on a blind man's eyes to heal him. The priests and producers of anointing oil were not happy that day. In fact, the entire story of Jesus is about a God who did not just want to stay out there, but who moves into the neighborhood, a neighborhood where folks said, nothing good could come. It is this Jesus who is accused of being a glutton and drunkard and rabble-rouser for hanging out with all of society's rejects, and who died on the imperial cross of Rome reserved for bandits and failed messiahs this is why the triumph over the cross was a triumph over everything ugly we do to ourselves and to others it is the final promise that love wins it is this jesus who was born in a stank manger in the middle of a genocide that is the god we are just as likely to find in the streets as in the sanctuary who can redeem revolutionaries and tax collectors the oppressed and the oppressors a God who is saving some of us from the ghettos of poverty and some of us from the ghettos of wealth. In closing, to those who have closed the door on religion, I was recently asked by a non-Christian friend if he thought he was going to hell. I said, I hope not. It will be hard to enjoy heaven without you. If some of us who believe in God do not believe God's grace is big enough to save the whole world, well, we should at least pray that it is. Your brother, Shane. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good scary movie? Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. Join Rick, Karen, and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite movies and TV shows only on the simply syndicated 21st Century Media Network. After such a lengthy quotation from Shane Claiborne, it's probably important that I specify that the thing I'm about to share, the idea I'm about to put out there, just briefly, here at the end, is not from Claiborne. I don't have any idea if he would agree with me or not. But I've had moments where I've had conversations with people where I know, just from interacting with them, whether that be a little bit of interaction or a great deal, that they have a tremendous heart filled with love. And I would say filled with Christian love. And in some of these cases, these are people who profess to be atheist. Now, I say profess because all of us are taking a position here, carving out a position of faith or a position of intuition and pouring our, quote unquote, heart and soul into it. But I don't want to dismiss someone's claim to being a non-believer. That's a perfectly valid choice. And I've said this a few times on inappropriate conversations, and it's probably high time I clarified myself. There is a difference between a valid choice and a correct choice. And I think that we've got to be very careful to make the distinction. Because when I start talking about whether somebody's made a correct choice or not, well, I'm presuming that I've got a great deal of knowledge about them that I cannot possibly have. I try to refrain as much as possible from making judgments about people who have made You know, what, you know, maybe I could cast a judgment as a correct or incorrect choice. That's inappropriate. As the saying goes, only God knows the heart. But valid choice is a different idea. It's the idea that you can claim, you can stake out that claim for yourself and it has some intellectual validity. It's one of the choices. It may not be the choice I would make. It may be a choice I would actually, you know, strongly disagree with, but it's a valid choice. So you can be an individual who has a great deal of hate in your heart for other people and identify yourself as Christian and go to church more than anybody else. That's a pretty obvious statement, I think, for a lot of us who've encountered just those kinds of hate-filled Christians. C.S. Lewis mentions it in his book, *Mirror Christianity, as well. But the flip side of that is just as valid. You can be somebody who loves your neighbor as you love yourself, You can be somebody who denies the very existence of a God, but lives your life as if he's real. And my question is this. When somebody says, you know, I'm an atheist, I know I'm going to hell. Or I'm an atheist, if there is such a thing as a hell, that that's where I'm going. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe not, though. Well, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis again. C.S. Lewis describes his interpretation of the idea that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus this way we know that no one can come to the father except through jesus but we do not know that only those who know jesus can be saved by jesus that's a very different idea it puts the prerogative where it belongs on jesus and what if one of those people that i know has modeled a life of really trying their hardest to love their neighbor as they love themselves even though they would insist that they don't do it for any sort of religious reason Somebody who has responded to the love that they've been given by paying it forward. Somebody who understands the concepts of a hurting world. You see, the difference between an atheist and a Christian is this. A Christian is convinced that at the moment we die, we are going to see God and face judgment. The atheist believes that at the moment of death, we're not going to see anything. Game over. So what if both of us are wrong? And I'm not talking about any sort of Pascal's wager here. I'm just asking the thought question, what if both of us are wrong? If I die and there's nothing there, there's no one to encounter, there's no one to see, there's no judgment, well, you know, it probably doesn't matter much that I'm not going to hear someone say, well done, good and faithful servant, or here's where you've missed the mark. I'm not going to hear any of that. But I believe that I know two kinds of non-believers, two kinds of atheists. There are the kinds of atheists who if at the moment of death did come face to face with Jesus Christ would acknowledge it. And I don't want to presume that Jesus doesn't have the power to make a transforming difference in that individual's life. The thing that I hear most often is I'd need to I need some proof. I'd need to see this face to face. And I believe As a Christian, one day that encounter will happen. The difference is, I don't assume as a Christian that at the moment of that encounter, Jesus is going to tell everybody who didn't, you know, believe in him during their earthly life that it's too late and it's, you know, time's up. Because I believe there is another kind of atheist, another kind of non-believer, who even if at the moment of death they encounter Jesus himself at a moment of judgment, would still, in a metaphorical way, or in an actual way, spit in his face and walk away. The kind of person who's figured out how to love their neighbor as they love themselves, I believe, would love God when they encounter him. And where this connects back to Shane Claiborne's ideas is this idea that ultimately what matters is face-to-face. You can make a difference in the life of a nursing home patient by holding his hand or holding her hand in a way that there is no check you can write that can cover that distance. There is nothing you can do that tells that person that they are real and that someone else who is real cares about them. I just happen to believe that if at that moment of earthly death, Jesus is the one holding your hand and you realize for the first time in a way you've never imagined it before, that you are real and he is real. Well, there are two kinds of non-believers in the world. There are the kinds of non-believers who would respond to the touch, and there are the kind who wouldn't. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. I have a new URL for the website. It's www.inappropriateconversations.org and the show notes are enabled there. Thanks for listening.